outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 333. And today in the show, I'm joined by the DIY sportsman himself, Garrett Prawl, to examine his ultralight mobile hunting style and the fascinating approach he takes to testing and modifying his gear to perfectly fit his hunts. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, like I just mentioned, we've got Garrett Prawl. And if you know of Garrett, it's likely because of his popular YouTube channel or podcast, both under the name of DIY Sportsman. And what I think makes Garrett's approach and his content so unique is this this seemingly endless tinkering and modifying and fine-tuning that's applied to you know almost every aspect of his hunting gear and his hunting process. You can just see this engineering background shine through everything he's doing, whether it's talking about climbing stick modifications or choosing the right place to hunt on any given day. And I just love this this analytical and and experimental approach to things even though at times maybe especially with gear i'm not very good at that but i'm i'm always wanting to try to get better at those kinds of things so that's what we're talking about today first it's a thorough examination of garrett's mobile hunting style and how he approaches scouting and hunting on the fly and how he adjusts to changing conditions or hot deer sign how he knows when to hunt somewhere and when he knows to keep searching for something better and a whole lot more on that front very interesting stuff. And then secondly, we spend a lot of time talking about the gear that helps him with this ultralight mobile hunting style. So we're getting into the nitty gritty details on his climbing system, you know, climbing sticks, uh, his saddle hunting gear, how he modifies sticks and tree stands and lineman's belts and all sorts of really in the weeds gear tricks and tips that have made him a more stealthy, speedy and efficient hunter which at least from my perspective, I think is really helpful stuff. I got to believe you guys are going to enjoy it too. So it's a chat I really enjoyed. I think you will enjoy it as well. And I'm excited for that one. But uh, before we get into the main event, um, I do not have my buddy Dan Johnson with me here today. So it's just me. But I do want to tell you a story 
um, because I've got an exciting update. If you follow me over on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you likely know about this, but I thought I'd share the story anyways. Um, Yesterday, my wife was feeling very, very, very pregnant, right? She's almost, well, she's pretty much ready to have a baby. (laughs) Let's just put that out there. She's 39 and a half weeks, very uh, eager for this thing to happen, as am I. And so yesterday, she says, let's go for a walk. She'd been pacing around the house all morning, just walking circles, because that's the only thing that makes her feel half decent. So she said, let's go for a walk. And I think it was me, might have been her, um, who said, well, let's just go walk in that cornfield up by the road at this property to hunt. It's it's nearby, it's easy to get to, and um, just we could just roam around wherever. We could take the dogs. So my wife, who's very pregnant, my two dogs... And my two-year-old son and I head outside, head out to this spot, and just start walking. And we just get into the cornfield, and my son doesn't want to walk in the snow. He's, for whatever reason, just the texture of the snow or the depth or something, he wasn't comfortable. Um, So he's just standing there, refusing to walk, refusing to walk. So I go walking like 10 yards up and turn around and tell him to come follow me, and he won't do it. So I go back to him, I pick him up. And I start walking again. And and because of where I had to go to pick him up, I'm now a couple rows down in the corn than I would have started otherwise. And I just barely start walking. I mean, I'm 10 yards in, 15 yards in, something like that. And in my mind, I kind of thought, oh, man, I, I better just keep an eye out just in case he happens to see an antler out here. But I'm right off the road, right by a house. And lo and behold, there's an antler, like right there. And I look five yards further on, and there's another antler right there. There's a match set right in front of me just as we start walking. My whole dang family right there. I mean, it was crazy. I'm, you know, can't believe it. I'm yelling at my wife, oh, my God, there's antlers right there. Get Everett. We got to show him the antlers. And we go up to him, and Kylie sets Everett down in front of the antlers, and she picks one up. And then I get to see the antler. I let them pick it up first, and as she picks it up, I see the G2s on it. And... It was one of those holy crap moments. That's trans antler. That is the antler from the buck that I watched all 2018 passing on him because I wanted to see him in 2019. And then 2019, as you guys probably know, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I was hunting him obsessively all 2019, had these close calls, you know, almost had a shot and basically had a shot, but passed on it because I didn't feel comfortable with um, the angle he was at and the possibility of limbs getting in the way. So I had all these close calls. I saw him on the very last day of the season. He's the one and his antlers, both sides are right here, right off the road in front of me on this walk with my family. I mean, it was nuts. I freaked out. Very, very excited. (laughs) These are the antlers I was dying to get my hands on this year. I was going to spend a ton of time shed hunting, trying to find them. And lo and behold, we stumble on them in the most unlikely fashion of all time. I mean, the luckiest thing maybe that's ever happened to me as far as deer hunting related things. Just couldn't believe it. Shocking. Very exciting. Um, But what's interesting is what happened the rest of the day. So we, we get the antlers and then we go home a little bit later. And at first when my son got the antler, when we saw the antlers outside in the cornfield, he just wasn't feeling. He was kind of sour. He just wasn't happy about the whole walking in the deep snow. So we go back to the house, get inside. I give him the antlers then, and then he freaks out. He's really excited about the antlers. He's trying to say the word antler. It kind of comes out, ah, 
but he's running around with the antlers. He's putting them on his head like he's a deer. He's pointing at the deer mounts up on the wall, pointing at the antlers, pointing at his antlers, pointing at the antlers, pointing at his antlers. He's rattling them. He goes to our shed pile and makes me grab some other sheds, and I have to rattle while he rattles. I mean, he was having just a blast. Fast forward a little bit and later in the day, now it's in the evening, and he looks out the window. It's about dinner time, and he starts yelling, dead, dead, dead. And I look out there, and he sees deer out in the field. And with the snow over the fields, the deer really pop. And that's something he's never done before. He's never actually spotted deer before me. So he spots the deer, starts yelling, there's deer, deer, deer. And I have to go over there and watch the deer with him. And then we go look at the front, out the front of the house, and there's deer in the front field across the road. So we're running from window to window. He's yelling about the deer. We've got to grab binoculars. He makes me grab mine. He's got his little toy binoculars. We're watching him. Then we got to go to his room and look out his window and see if there's deer out there. That was a blast. Then he goes and grabs his grunt tube and his rattling bag. He gives me the rattling bag. He takes the grunt tube. He starts grunting. Brah, brah. He looks at me and then makes me rattle. Um, just hilarious. So that was great. And then maybe, I don't know, we eat dinner. We get done with dinner. And then he starts bugling. He loves watching elk videos. So he's got this really high-pitched kind of mouth bugle whistle he can kind of do. He goes, Aah! he'll do that. When he does that, that means he wants to watch some elk hunting videos. So... You know, I'm thoroughly enjoying all of his excitement today, so I decided to throw on a YouTube video that just shows bugling bulls. Just a kind of a reel of all these different bulls somewhere that someone recorded all this different video footage out in the Rockies or somewhere. So we pull that on, and then I go grab my bugle tube. I've never done this before, but I just for some reason got the idea that I bet you he could have a good time with the bugle tube. So I give him the bugle tube. He watches the elk on the YouTube, and then he starts mimicking it with the bugle. And I'm not shitting you guys. He is good. Like he now he's not using the reed. He's just making the sound with his voice and amplifying it with the tube. But I mean he was nailing it. He was even getting some growl in the front and the back end. He's got the rising tone and then the drop off at the end. You know, he would listen to one and then try to mimic it. He listened to one and try to mimic it. And it was just the coolest thing <laughs> seeing him there doing it. And he would even, you know, when guys bugle and he's probably seen this in the hunting video that's what he's duplicating it but they often start with the bugle tube pointed low and then rise rise or lift the tube up high towards the end of the note he was even doing that it was crazy um so we just had a ball just an absolute ball and i'm laying in bed last night getting ready to you know shut it down and i'm thinking back on the day you know i found these antlers from the deer that i've obsessed over for the last two years like it was my number one goal for the next couple months and there they were and I got the match set um, that's incredible and then I'm thinking about all the other things that happened like the fact that I did that with my son and with my wife and then playing with the antlers afterwards and then grunting at the bucks outside and watching with our binoculars and then bugling like an elk and all these things and I realized man the best things about that whole day didn't have to do with finding those antlers at all and it was just yeah, it's a small thing but it was just one of those moments where I was reminded of what's really important. And it's easy with how much we love this stuff, how much we love deer and hunting and, and whatever outdoor pursuits we're into. It's easy to get wrapped up in that. It's easy to get obsessed with the goal, with the thing, with the pursuit. And I'm as guilty as anyone. You guys know it. I really get after the stuff. Um, but days like yesterday just remind you to take a step back and make sure your perspective is right. Especially, man, after everything that happened this Sunday with the passing of, of Kobe, 
you know, just an iconic figure like that, that I know some pe- so many people were influenced by and, and grew up with. Um, and him being with his daughter, that just breaks your heart. And it, it makes you think as a dad, um, just to kiss your kids, hug your wife or your husband or your family members, and just remember what's really most important. So with that said, we do need to talk deer hunting still. So let's get right into it and talk to Garrett Prawl. Before that, though, quick break here. And we're not going to thank a partner here this week. I'm actually going to just thank you guys. I want to give a thank you to the entire Wired to Hunt audience for your support with my book, That Wild Country. The support, the uh, just the uprising of folks talking about the book, sharing the book, buying the book. It's been incredible. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's been a huge success because of you guys. So thank you for that. If you haven't yet picked up a copy, certainly would encourage you to do so. Um, check out the reviews on Amazon to see what the real people think about the book. I've just been so pleasantly surprised and honored and humbled to hear that people are really enjoying it, finding it really informational, but also a lot of fun. Man, that is the the coolest thing to see people enjoying that. So thanks in advance. And if you did pick up a copy, I thank you for that. But also, if you haven't left a review on Amazon, it'd be amazing if you could do that. There's a couple folks in there that don't like the fact I hunt or leave a couple nasty comments like that. So we got to make sure there's some other good reviews out there too, um, which fortunately 99% of them are, which super appreciative. So head on over, leave a review and thank you in advance for all of your support there. All right. With me now on the line is Garrett Prawl. Welcome to the show, Garrett. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Yeah. I'm glad we're getting to chat. Uh, as we just mentioned before I started recording, I saw you at the bar at ATA, and I think I was standing next to Dan Johnson, and you know how he is. He's big and loud, and you won't let you get past him, so I couldn't reach over and grab you and and chat with you, so I'm glad we're finally getting able to chat tonight because I've been following your work from afar and uh, enjoying what you're putting out there to the world, so uh, glad you can be here tonight, man. Absolutely appreciate it. So tell me this. I kind of want to just jump right into it. I want to know, how did you become the DIY sportsman? Why is that how you define yourself? You know, I think it just kind of, it morphed into that over time. I've always been the kind of guy who tinkers around with a lot of stuff, um, you know, build stuff in the garage, never really um, did anything on, in terms of like guided hunts or anything like that. Everything that we did growing up was always you know, for the most part, public land, kind of, you know, figure stuff out as you go. So when I started to make content, eventually it kind of morphed into, you know, that everything kind of fit in that DIY category in some way or another, whether it was from that hunting aspect or if it was actually building my own gear. Um, And it just kind of kept on going from there. What was, when did that facet of it start, the whole gear side? Were you doing that even as a as a kid, were you the kid that was obsessed with Legos and connects and all that stuff? Or, or when did that kind of click for you? Oh yeah. I've always been that way. I was the kid who was, you know, a second grader whittling little Rapala lures with a pocket <laughs> knife. Nice. That was, that was totally me. That's amazing. What, uh, what was your first piece of hunting gear that you modified or created? Do you remember that? Oh boy. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not even 100% sure what the first thing was. Maybe eighters for sticks. 
Nice. Okay. So that's probably within the last decade then? Yeah. Yeah. So what about your hunting style itself? When, you know, if I were to look at when my hunting, when my own style of hunting kind of came into its own or when I came into my own as a hunter, um, it was, it was a little over a decade ago, probably in my very early twenties. That's when it kind of, when it clicked for me. And I, I went from just hunting to hunting in a, in a informed way that was like now my way. Um, when did that happen for you? When did you shift from just being like a kid out there hunting to, oh, I'm now I'm hunting? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for me, it was probably when I was about 15. For the first couple of years, my dad and I, we'd go out in the woods and we'd kind of try to figure it out, but we never quite, you know, knew exactly what we were doing, wanted to get better for sure. And about that same time, I stumbled on some articles from guys like Dan Infault and Andre DeQuisto talking about marsh hunting techniques, which was, you know, kind of the terrain that we most often hunted and that really opened up my eyes and also allowed me to to kind of dig a little bit deeper and figure out on my own what methods and strategies I could use to help you know get a little bit more familiar with the scouting aspect get a little bit more familiar with the note taking and kind of plugging in all that together to make it work actually in the fall uh, so that's kind of when I really went off the deep end so to speak and really started to put a lot of time and effort into really refining the way that we we hunted yeah so how would you describe that the way that you hunt if if you had to you know let's say the the classic elevator pitch you're on an elevator going from the first floor to the fourth floor and a guy says tell me what your hunting style is how do you describe that to him in the 20 30 60 seconds you've got before you get to that fifth floor oh boy (laughs) <laughs> you might you might want to turn into a, a forty floor elevator. <laughs> well, okay, skyscraper. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a nutshell, for me, it, it really between off season and in season. The off season stuff really revolves around a combination of aerial scouting and boots on the ground scouting. And in season, it's the same thing. It's just that it really just revolves between aerial scouting and looking for fresh sign with that in season scouting. And really, for me, it's very cyclical. I go right from one to the other. They're always really meshed closely with one another. The better job I do with boots on the ground in the off-season, that allows me to look back at the maps and better piece together the big picture. And then I find new things in the map, go back into the woods, dig a little bit deeper. And then same thing in the season, the better job I did looking at the maps, the better job I did um, actually you know, picking it apart in the postseason. I find that in-season, when I find the sign that I'm looking for that indicates I'm in a hot area, that other stuff really helps me look at exactly how I want to pinpoint that setup on that specific day and be a little bit more precise in, in how I do that setup. Uh, whereas if I just you know focus on one or the other, if I focus all on postseason or if I focus all on just in season, I, I feel like I'm really limiting myself. Or if I don't look at the maps, yeah. I feel like I'm really going in blind. Yeah. I, w- I want to dive deeper into those quite dramatically. But before I do that, you mentioned on the front end that folks like Dan Infault were really influential on you. And, and, and me too, and a lot of people out there, there's, there's a lot of folks that have this kind of style of hunting. Um, how would you say, if at all, your own spin on it is different? If you and Dan were to go out, if you're on the public land challenge or whatever it is, and Dan's going off and doing his thing, you're going off doing your thing, how would you describe what you're doing that would be different than him? I think you could probably summarize and say Dan at this point is a little bit better woodsman than I am. He can look at things and have a little bit better feel for what exactly is going on 
than I can, whereas I have to rely a little bit more on uh, being able to piece together certain you know theories and strategies and whatnot by looking at kind of the bigger picture and trying to piece together you know what the maps say at one location, how that compares to what I've seen at a different location, and then piecing it together with what I'm actually seeing on the ground and, and kind of learning that way. Uh, I think I maybe do a little bit more on the, um, I would say the technical, but the um, online portion of that scouting than he does. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny what you said there resonates with me because I think I'm probably similar to you in that for us at our stage, you know, versus having done this for 45 years or however long he's been doing it at this level, um, when we've done it 10, 15 years, whatever, at this level, I still have to really focus on analyzing all these pieces of data coming in, right? I'm thinking about all this fresh sign, all my, all the sign from previous scouting efforts, and I'm sitting there and I have to literally think it through and kind of compute, okay, this is telling me this, and this is saying this other thing. Now I'm going to weigh the odds of these two things and, and make a decision while some like infault might just have that intuitively click. He's just going to, he's not going to sit there for five minutes and debate between A and B. He's going to know, yeah, I've seen this a thousand times before. This is going to be the best option. He steps in the woods and these things pop out like bright shining lights. Um, and I think every year the bright shining lights start to flash a little bit more for me, but I still have to sit and think for a second. Um, does that sound right? Is that kind of where you feel like you're a lot too that, that takes you have to think it through still? It's not that snap. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of describing it. I'm the type of guy who I'll sit there in the truck before I leave and I'll sit there for half an hour trying to debate between <laughs> two or three different spots that all yeah. could be equally good based on the wind direction and, and what I've noticed scouting. So I definitely I think about it a lot more than I probably should, probably to the point where uh, at certain times, I get paralysis by analysis, mm-hmm. but eventually, you know, I just kind of, kind of go with the flow on a particular day and and make something work, and and then, you know, take out take what I learned that day and modify it for the next day. How do you deal with that situation? So me and Dan talk about this a lot, dealing with paralysis by analysis, because we're both guilty of it. We both are so we geek out about the details and about trying to think through all these things, but like you just said, sometimes it can get to be so much you're stuck. How do you push through that and make that final decision? It's you know it's the rut. It's November fourth. You're about to head out on this hunt, and it's two thirty or three thirty or four thirty in the morning. You got to make that decision of where you're going. How do you how do you break the tiebreaker? So I think for me it is number one having a plan, not being afraid to stick with the plan, but then also not being so stuck into the plan that you're not willing to deviate from it when you see something that tells you you should. So, for example, you know, when we went down to Missouri this year, I had a plan that first day for all the types of spots that I wanted to to look at. We, you know, walked nine miles that first day just looking for pinch points uh, between various bedding areas I thought I saw on the map. And then my plan was, you know, basically just systematically work through a bunch of these different areas. Uh, But what we found on the first day told me that that first strategy wasn't going to work. So that was all plan B. So I just, you know, basically I had the plan B already in mind. So I just went from A to B and then just started doing some of that additional scouting, um, getting some feedback from other guys in the group that were in that same area. And then based on some of my historical you know, experiences and, and looking at research in terms of weather patterns and whatnot, I had planned on basically setting up in a certain area based on what the weather was going to be the next day. Um, and that was basically the plan 
for that. And it allowed me to really easily kind of stick to that plan and get into that area, uh, hang our sets for that next morning when we were supposed to get that nice, you know, high pressure, cold air, nice, calm day. Um, but then at the same time, that particular day when we went and set our stuff up there, uh, we found that even though the weather wasn't maybe ideal for what you'd expect a lot of deer movement to be, the deer were just on their feet running. Um, and we saw, we worked through an area that we saw a lot of deer moving around and said, you know what, we, we can't go back and do what we were planning on, on doing. We got to just sit right here. And that's how I ended up shooting that, uh, buck that I got in Missouri. Um, but had I, had I basically either number one, got too stuck in that plan, I probably wouldn't have ended up sitting where I ended up shooting my deer. And number two, if I didn't have the ability to just, you know, so easily make that plan in the first place, I would have been, you know, stuck at the truck trying to figure out, you know, where in the thousands of acres I was going to go. And it would have been, you know, a much tougher decision. Yeah. That's really hard to do what you described there, especially that first part where you've got a plan A and you go in on day one and, and I've experienced this. It is really hard to shift from A to B, uh, especially if you're in a new spot where there's, you know, thousands of acres to choose from and, your day one would be a tough thing to do for a lot of people where you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went in thinking you were going to focus on ridge tops and finding these, these terrain funnels of sorts and you didn't find sign and you ended up in a totally different area, like river bottom area, and then you did find something there. That's, that's right, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely what happened. We covered tons and tons of miles on that on those walk on those ridge tops looking for sign. Last year in Missouri, around that same time, that's where the hot sign was different area, but similar terrain. And so I thought it was just going to be like we did last year and it was ended up being totally different. But I will say what, what has helped me probably this past year that I really started focusing on a little bit more, especially in areas where I haven't done the pre-scouting even around home in Minnesota, I hunted a new marsh this year and I didn't have any postseason experience other than a couple quick trips in June and July, which is awful in the swamps. But <laughs> Effectively, what I tried to do, since there's so many, there's so much acreage, there's so many spots that look like they could be great, is I would specifically pick on a particular day to go on a route that could take me through an A, B, and a C. And so I would go in there on whatever day I was going to hunt and look at the sign in area A. And if it wasn't that great, I would just keep on going to B. And then I would keep on going to C. And by the time I got to C, if C also wasn't that great, then I would just continue scouting my way back to the truck. Hmm. And, you know, it didn't feel as much like it was a wasted day. Whereas in the past, what I may have done is said, okay, A looks like the best potential spot based on the map. And I would go in there, I'd hunt it regardless of what the sign looked like. And I think I definitely got on more deer this year by having that ABC strategy in mind rather than trying to pick spots where it was, you know, really, you know, no plan B option. Yeah. Now, how do you do that at the scale you did on that first day where you walked nine miles without finally seeing the thing you wanted to see? I, I, I don't know if I could do that. I thought, you know, I went on a trip in Minnesota this past year and I walked something like three miles and I thought to myself, all right, you covered a bunch of ground and finally you got to sit down somewhere. Um, you cover nine miles before you finally found the thing you wanted to find. Um, tell me, Tell me about what you saw over the course of that day. You know, there must have been something that made you think, oh, this might be okay. I'm curious what made you keep going and going and going. Or was it just simply like a complete 
lack of zero, devoid of deer sign? I mean, was it just a desert? Or did you have such a strong sense of confidence in the fact that there had to be somewhere with tons and tons and tons of fresh sign that you were just going to keep pushing till you got there? What was your whole thought process throughout that day? Yeah, so it definitely looked like a desert for a lot of the, the area that I was in. Places where I would expect to see for sure sign, rubs, scrapes, whatnot. There just wasn't much of anything. Might see some old tracks on the logging roads or, or something like that. But basically, I wasn't going to stop walking until I found something that gave me at least some amount of confidence that it would be good to to set up in. So we just kept walking that first day. And really, that first day, the only thing that we ended up finding that looked remotely good was when we finally did get down to a river bottom type area. We found a few sets of fresh tracks. Uh, then we started to find a couple rubs. Then we found a scrape. And then we saw three does that we kicked up and and uh, bounced out of that area. And then from that point, it was, okay, well, if we walk through this many miles of hills up in the ridge tops and just haven't seen much of any sign, yeah, we know that there's deer down in this river bottom. Let's go back, look at the maps again, talk to some of the people back at camp, and then see what other places on the maps are going to be similar to this. And then that kind of fueled how we looked at going about the next day. You know, it's kind of shifting focus from not necessarily the exact spots, but the type of habitat that we were in and saying this type of stuff that we've already walked through, we've walked through enough of it to say we don't have confidence with this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But this other type of stuff that we walked through, we did you know, have confidence in. And maybe that's not the exact spot, but there's got to be more spots just like this. So that's kind of you know what we did for the next day. Yeah. This last summer, me and Dan were talking about his um, trail camera scouting strategy that he put together and we called it dan johnson's dots on a map connect them with lines strategy and i think that you've now created what i'm going to call the type of stuff strategy <laughs> what i think is <laughs> i think is going to be a good one because it may, it's it's a great point that you make which is especially when you're hunting public land especially when it's larger swaths of land you need to somehow compartmentalize it you have to break it down somehow and one way to do it is what you did which is breaking it by the type of terrain or the type of stuff and and finding where the activity is focused. Because very often what you described is happening in other places too, where they're they're in a spot for a reason, right? They're in a river bottom for a reason, just why they're not on top of those ridges. So once you can isolate it, drill it down somehow, then you can focus on finding something similar. And that's Man, that's applicable during the rut. That's applicable in the early season, the late season, any kind of time of year. When you find what that type of stuff is, it can help you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've even seen it in terms of, you know, say like marsh islands, where there might be 30, 40, 50 islands on a particular piece of land. But maybe you find that you were hunting on an island that was surrounded by red brush, and all of a sudden you found more deer activity on that particular island. Well, then you can go back in the map and look at, okay, out of these 50 islands, maybe, you know, eight or 10 or 12 of them also have that same kind of brush surrounding those islands. So then that would be kind of where I would focus on next rather than trying to look at that whole sea of 50 of them and trying to figure out which one would be the best. Yeah. It, it comes back to, to looking at those details. Like, why is this? So it's, okay, here's the type of stuff. Now, why is this the type of stuff? So you found that that the red brush was the unique feature. That's uh. That's interesting. Now the next day, so you're on the Missouri hunt. Mm-hmm. First day you walked and walked and walked, never really found what you wanted until the end. 
The next day, you went back to a different place, but the same kind of stuff. And this hunt, you actually had the opposite, I think, if I remember the story right from watching your videos and stuff. You had a game plan looking for that kind of stuff. And then before you could even get to where you eventually thought you would go, you decided you had to stop right then and there because of the the deer activity you saw, right? Um, How do you go about making that decision? So day one... It was, I'm not stopping until I see something that makes me have to stop. And you never did. So you kept going and going and going. So we just talked about how you know when not to stop. Now, day yep. two, you're going in and the opposite happens that something stops you before you get to where you thought you were going to go. And you said, oh, this means I have to stop. Describe that thought process. Sure. Well, I'll interject before I answer that question specifically to say that there was a day in between there uh, where we didn't we didn't see much at all, but it was a very hot, like 65-degree afternoon. But we took our learnings from day one, got in another low river bottom type area that, again, had this, like, I don't know what kind of plant it was, but it's this green stuff that was growing in this river bottom area. And we only saw a couple deer that entire day. But when we were walking out at night, we must have kicked out 20 different deer on the way back to the truck in that same river bottom area. Uh, we saw a really nice buck in a private field right again in that same kind of area after dark. So it was like, okay, now we've kind of confirmed that the river bottom is where they're at. And we think that it might just be a, a factor of the weather that they weren't moving during daylight um, in that particular habitat. Okay. So based on based on day one, I'm not seeing anything in the ridge tops saying, hey, you know, it might be good in the river bottoms. And then day two, kind of that confirmation of, hey, the deer are down here. They just got to move during daylight. And then we jump into day three. Uh, so day three, how do you know when to stop? Well, we, we basically walked into, again, an area that was kind of like a, a thermal hub that we had planned on sitting the following morning. Because this day three... Sorry to uh, jump in and inject, yeah. but just in case people don't know, can you explain what you mean by thermal hub? Sure. So in this hilly Ozark, Missouri habitat, there's a lot of these little you know fingered ridges and you have these... Um, basically these bottom type areas where it's the almost like the bottom of a creek drainage where you might have all of these little tiny creeks that flow and they eventually get into you know bigger and bigger creeks and you get into some of these areas where it's just kind of a flat open area but you might have three or four different ridges that all drop off into this one little bottom area and the way that the deer can use that of course is with the scent especially the dropping thermals in the early morning and late evenings when that scent drops into that area it kind of pools and it collects the the scent from a lot of different you know area in the surrounding hills so the thought process with that is hey early morning it's going to be nice you know calm cool if we get any dropping thermals um then that could be a good area for potentially a buck to to hit that area as he's scent checking for does uh, first thing in the morning so that was kind of the the thought strategy and kind of the description of the area that we were looking at specifically where we you know hung our stuff for that following day Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Yeah. So continue on. Yep. So the weather is the other kind of important thing here. And that morning of the third day, we didn't even hunt because it was about you know 35 degrees driving wind and rain um and of course we had camera gear and this that and the other thing so we just we knew it was going to get colder with this cold front moving in so we decided to wait until the rain turned into something solid eventually it turned into sleet and that sleet eventually turned into snow and that was when we hit the woods so we got out there thinking that the deer might be hunkered down during that you know that major front and then the next morning was going to be the hot spot. So we weren't even really thinking at that time that we were planning on giving a high percentage hunt that afternoon. We just wanted to get ourselves into a good area, pick the trees, get set up so that the following morning we'd be able to have the ideal setup. But then after we got into that thermal hub, we found the trees, we found the ideal setup, we hung our platforms, we hung our sticks. As we were coming back to the direction of the truck, we got into this river bottom area that, you know, with the probably the half inch of snow that was on the ground by that time, we were seeing sets of tracks running through. So that already indicated to us that in the last couple of hours, there's been deer running through here. Then we kicked up a doe. She had a buck on her. And then we saw another doe and a buck going through the same area. And at that point, it was like, okay, we'd be idiots to keep walking past this. Uh, so we just we obviously didn't have our stuff with us. We just looked for an ideal spot to, to be able to sit at least somewhat secluded on the ground. And the, the challenge with that particular area was that it was open river bottom and you could see, you know, 200 yards in, in most directions. So I was like, well, how do you know exactly where to set up? And we really didn't, but we knew we had it to be there somewhere. And that being next to any particular tree was better than, you know, not being in that area at all. So we ended up just kind of trying to pick the best spot that we could that was next to some tracks and it was kind of next to a convergence of like a crp field and a little bit of thicket that was also kind of on that river bottom uh 
but to be totally honest, I mean, the, the deer, real, there was nothing that was defining enough of a terrain feature to force the deer through any particular spot. So we just kind of picked the best spot that we, we thought we could and, you know, hunkered into a deadfall. And then describe what happened next. So we saw a fawn moving through, got within 20 yards of us, never knew we were there. It was kind of fun for my wife because she got to film it and see it. And then we saw a buck chasing a doe about, oh, I'd say 80 yards away from us. And then from a totally different direction, about an hour before light, I could see another doe coming from that CRP field direction. So a totally different direction than the last doe and, or buck and doe that we saw running through. Again, indicating that it was just kind of luck if you're in the right spot at the right time down there. But we saw a doe coming in. She was headed nearly straight toward us. And then I could see a buck right behind her. And she slowly moved, you know, getting a little bit closer and closer. She was probably about 20 yards away from getting directly downwind. And I was thinking that she was going to bust us. But then at the last minute, she turned and came on a beeline straight toward me. And then, of course, about it's hard to tell in the video, but she's about 10 or 12 yards away. She looks up and sees me holding my bow and, and sees my wife standing there in the deadfall. And she takes off. But the buck doesn't really know at this point what has happened. He's standing about 25 yards away, quartering two. Well, then he finally turns his head to go look at the doe. And I got back to full draw um, and then settled the sight on him and shot. And then, you know, the rest is, is history. So it was a little bit of a, you know, luck, but I got, I'll take that during the ride any day, you know? Yeah, heck yeah. Well, it, it kind of seems like this is something that is not completely out of the ordinary for you, though. Um, that being, it sounds like on occasion you do find yourself um, deciding to sit on the ground. And I think just having the confidence to do that allowed you to, you know, pull off this hunt. Because some guys would maybe have been walking through there they saw this sign and the deer go running through and they're thinking, ah, crap, I don't have a stand with me. Um, I can't hunt here. So I'm going to go back to the truck or I'm going to go back wherever you did hang your sticks and go grab your stuff out of the tree and walk back. And by the time they came back and two hours later, or whatever the sign or the, the action that you guys actually enjoyed would have been passed. Um, t- tell me about that. Tell me how often do you find yourself bow hunting on the ground and that kind of, you know, impromptu kind of way. Is that something you're, you're adding to your repertoire more and more and why? Yeah, I think this year, definitely more than in years past, probably about, I'd say a good 30% of my hunts this year, I sat on the ground. And a lot of times it was just kind of going back to the plan ABC. Sometimes you get to plan B or plan C and you just don't feel like you have that much time to be able to set up, or maybe the area that you're in is, not really ideal for a, a tree stand setup or a saddle setup, but you can, you have great ground cover, whether it's grass or whether it's deadfall. And I feel like sometimes you can be more effective on the ground. You definitely do get picked off in my experience a lot more on the ground than you do when you're up in a tree. But again, it's, it's kind of a balance between, do you think you got a better shot at trying to get up into a tree and maybe busting a deer out because they're getting ready to move? Um, or do you think you're going to be able to get a shot off on the ground? It really just comes down to a situation-specific type thing. And if I'm hunting on the ground, it's usually because I have the confidence that I'll be able to at least you know, get drawn back and be able to get a shot opportunity in a particular area without getting winded. Yeah. Anything you've picked up, having done that more and more this year, any little best practices or tricks you've learned to whether it be getting drawn or picking the right spot on the ground or 
anything you found that's helping you do that? Yeah, a tree size definitely has been a big thing. Uh, every time I've tried to sit on a tree that's narrower than my torso, I always get busted. It seems like, and I like so I like the bigger trees. Also, where the sun is coming from definitely makes a difference in how I'll set up. Hmm. If the sun is from behind me, I like to get on the front side of a tree or a brush or deadfall and kind of sit in the shade and be on the front side of that tree as if I was turkey hunting with a shotgun. And if the sun is in my face, then I'd much rather be on the backside of that tree and be kind of sitting in the shade there. So now the sun glaring off of me and magnifying all of my movements. So if the sun's in my face, a lot of times I'll take the, the tether for my saddle and I'll just hang on the backside of the tree to stay comfortable. And if it gets down to prime time, I might even just unhook and just stand vertical behind the tree. I did that on one hunt this year and had a, a buck walk by within 20 yards, had no idea I was there because I was able to sit behind that big red oak in the shade and he never even looked my direction. Um, but then if the, if the sun, of course, is from behind me, then I'd like to stay on the front side um, and be a little bit, have a little bit easier time trying to get to full draw. Picking when to draw definitely is is huge. I always, even if it's a deer, I'm not going to attempt to shoot. I like to practice getting to full draw just because it's, you know, it teaches you so much, think, like learning what you can and what you can't get away with and when you need to be able to move. Oh, yeah. And of course, and of course filming makes that infinitely harder. Um, a lot of times when I do get busted, it's from a combination of moving the cameras and uh, trying to get my bow into position. So if I didn't have that, that would make it much easier. What I like to do with a compound is definitely get drawn back at the first opportunity that I have and stay at full draw, you know, until I get a shot opportunity with a traditional bow. If I'm hunting with one of those, then it, I can't really do that necessarily. So I just kind of got to wait until I get the first good shot opportunity that I would have. Um, but yeah, all those little things definitely um, make a difference. Wind too. I mean, you can have the wind doing one thing up in a tree on the ground. It might be doing something a little bit different. So it's almost, it's really a case by case thing. And every time I do it, I learn something a little bit more, probably in a couple more years. If I continue to hunt off the ground a lot, I'm sure I'll know even a lot more than I do now. Yeah. It seems like you're getting into those kinds of situations because you have this very mobile hunting style, which we kind of talked about in fault, Eber Hart, uh, whoever, a lot of these folks have, have kind of, um, preached this for a long time. Now there's a lot of folks like us who are trying to adapt it to our own styles and, and put that into action. Um, so when you're not on the ground, it means you are in a tree. And one of the things about you that has made you interesting to me, particularly interesting over the years is the way you focused on really fine tuning your mobile hunting setup, maybe more than most other people, definitely more than most people. Um, that's been really interesting to me because I am not naturally good at gear. I'm not naturally good at messing and modifying and improving and fine tuning and testing a gear setup, whether that be my bow or my tree stand or my saddle or my truck. Uh, that's just not what I'm just not naturally good at that stuff. So when I see someone like you, who's really good at that stuff, I'm very jealous and I kind of dislike you a little bit for it. <laughs> so uh, let's just get that out of the way. Um, but that said, I, I want to dive deep into kind of the evolution of your mobile hunting setup, because I know that you've, you've used climbing sticks, you've used mobile tree stands, you've used saddles, you've used all sorts of interesting modified climbing methods. Um, let's talk about where you're at right now. What is the best mobile hunting setup for Garrett today? If you had to go in with, with one, one setup, 
for your public land hunt you're going on or whatever kind of hunt, what's that going to be of all the things you've tested? So I would say probably my bread and butter system is a saddle with a platform like the Predator, three climbing sticks with double steps, a single loop aider. And if the leaves are already down, then I would take that, I would take four sticks instead of three. And then a lightweight lineman's belt, like an eight millimeter Oplex rope, same thing for the tether. And basically just but just go with that. That would allow me to climb up in a tree. It allows me to use one stick if I need to, two sticks if I need to. It allows me to hunt off the ground if I want to. It really gives me a lot of options. Um, and that's it's really something I can bring in on any given hunt in hill country, in marsh country, big woods country, and be able to adapt and be able to pick a spot and hunt it the way I think it should be hunted. Yeah. yeah and I think that's been one of the biggest things for me especially why I love making the switch to a saddle is that when you head in and you've got your saddle and you've got your sticks, you don't feel the same obligation to go sit in a tree up high as you do if you carry it in a 12 or 15 pound tree stand. You know, it just seems so much easier. You know what? I'm just going to sit in the ground because you're not hauling in this big thing. But at least for me, when I used to have that stand with me, I'd get in there. I'm like, well, damn it. I just hiked this thing in here. I better use it. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, yeah, the, the, the lightweight approach, the ultralight approach um, is more and more and more appealing to me. Let's start at the ground, though. Let's start at uh, what you're doing at base level before you get up in the tree. You got to climb up there. Um, you've tested and tried a whole bunch of different ways to get up in there. Um, some of it I think is crazy. I've seen some of the things you've tried and the things you've manufactured and it's, it's nuts, um, but it's pretty cool. I couldn't do it. Tell me about <laughs> what your current climbing method of choice is. You said two-step sticks. Um, what's your favorite brand? Are you modifying them at all? Um, wh- what do you think is the best option right now for you? Well, so the ones that I typically use are ones that I made a couple of years ago. They are 24 inches long. And like I said, the double steps, really the the closest thing in, in terms of design, if people want to get a visual, would be like the, the Beast Gear Sticks. In terms of the weight, in terms of the length, in terms of the design, they're very, very similar to those. Um, so that's kind of what I prefer because I feel like I'm able to maximize the amount of height that I'm able to get per stick. They're lightweight at you know roughly a pound and a half per stick. And the the haters don't really add much of any weight at all to them, and they just they're not as packable, right? If I need to crawl under deadfall, that's that's really the only time when it becomes a pain because those steps will will hang up on the deadfall as you're trying to climb underneath or crawl underneath. But apart from that, it's usually not not too big of a deal. Um, and it's there's really no tree I can't get in with that particular system. And the other thing that it allows me to do with the steps being that far apart from one another is on certain trees I can kind of you know lean forward and hook my knees around those top steps and that gives me a little extra stability on top of the lineman's belt to be able to uh, you know trim a limb if I'm able to trim limbs or set my next stick if it's a really goofy odd leaning tree so it just gives me a lot of flexibility yeah so if people people most people out there probably can't build their own sticks or modify sticks maybe but if they were out there looking to buy something, you know, that's that's commercially available right now, what would the, you know, 
key things, you kind of just described it, but if you're looking at what's available out there, what would be some of the key features you would say that people should definitely try to get when they're choosing from the four or five, six different stick options out there? Sure. You know, one thing is, one thing is weight. If you're using one or two sticks, it really doesn't matter all that much. But if you're using three, four, if you're using five, that really starts to add up pretty quickly. So weight's definitely something I would look at. I personally like the double steps, uh, like I mentioned, but there's a lot of guys that also like the single steps. And, and really that comes down to personal preference, I think, more than anything. Single step sticks will usually pack a little bit better than and, the double. So if you're, and just, you're crawling... Th- yep, sorry, go ahead. Just to make sure that folks understand, when you say single versus double, you're... I think I'm understand what you're saying. As I understand it, it'd be when you get to your first step, like on a lone wolf, there'll be one step that slides out to the right, and then you have to kick out one to the left for the next step up. But then on a different type, like the muddy sticks or something, they've got left and right steps on the first step, left and right on the second step, left and right. You know, as you go up and up and up. That's what you mean, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's good to clarify that because there's the double steps, like you just described. And then there's also, sometimes I'll use double steps to describe the fact that there's two steps on that stick. There's two of those double steps, one on the top and one on the bottom, yeah. plus the aider, versus having three like a like a set of hawk or muddy might have. Yes. Okay, so continue with what you're saying, though. Start jumping. Yeah, so so definitely wait. And if you're a single or a double step guy, that'll determine, you know, if you want to go more packable, if that's more important to you, then rotating single steps, like the lone wolf's, might be a better option for you. But if you like just all around best climbability, I think double steps, you know, each step having two on the same level is definitely the way to go. I personally like standoffs that are a little bit further from the tree, uh, as opposed to uh, steps that are the standoffs that are really close to the tree, just from the standpoint that it allows me to get more of the balls of my feet on the step and then I don't get calf fatigue nearly as bad. Um, so, and it allows me to you know, wrap, my, wrap my knees around the top steps a little bit easier if I do happen to be on a tree where I want to be able to do that. So those are things I would look for. Um, really within the mobile community, there's, you know, there's the V-Sticks, there's the, the Lone Wolf, Lone Wolf Custom Gears, the, you know, the Hawks. Hawk actually came out with a, a new two-step stick this year based on the fact that a lot of guys used to take their three-step ones and cut them down mm-hmm. to make the, you know, just the top and the bottom one. Um, which brings me to another, you know, point of distinction is just the overall length of the stick. Me being six foot tall, I like a 24 inch aluminum portion of that that stick. Uh, I don't feel like that's really stretching it out too far for me at all. If I was six four, I could probably go with a little bit longer tube. Um, and then obviously late season it gets a little bit more tight, but I still found that for me, 24 inches is still doable. And the step spacing on that's probably closer to 22 when you factor in the loss you know, having the step not at the bottom of the tube. Um, whereas you see a lot of stack, a lot of sticks out there might have a 15 or 17 inch step spacing. So again, the shorter ones are going to be more compact, a little more packable, but I feel like the climbability, you can usually get by with a little bit longer step spacing than you might think. Yeah. What about, um, the attachment to the tree? I know there I, I've, on the sticks I use, I've replaced the usual belt. I, I'm, I'm 
blanking on brain farting on the right way to describe this, but the the webbing that you throw around the tree and cinch on your verse button or whatever, I've I've taken that out and replaced that with with something different than what was made or what came with the sticks out of the box. I know you've tested a whole bunch of different things. I saw a video of yours once with like six different rope systems, attachment methods. Where what do you think's the best option? What do you use? What do you recommend for other folks there? Just use it out of the box, or do you think we should all be switching it out? Well, there's nothing wrong with using the the off the shelf method with that cam buckle strap, but if you do ditch that strap, you save like six to eight ounces per stick, and you eliminate that potential for noise. Right? You can you know put stall strips or rubber or felt or anything on those buckles to quiet them down, or you can just be really careful. But if you switch to a buckleless system, then you're able to be you know, obviously a little bit lighter, a little bit quieter in general. What I like personally the best after trying, like you said, just about everything that's out there, I still keep going back to a quarter inch piece of AM steel that's spliced into a loop on one end that you flip, that you slide over the Versa button. And then you just throw that thing around the tree. And then you just, you know, it's going to be tough to describe it on a podcast, but the rope mod basically where you just take that free end of the rope and, and hitch it underneath itself and lock it and hold it in place with a half hitch is it allows me to use it on basically any tree because you can make that that am steel rope as long as you want you can make it eight foot you can make it 10 foot you can make it six foot right you can do whatever length you want there so tree size isn't as big of a concern that am steel is very very low stretch it's dyneema so when you actually do the rope mod and you wait you put your weight on the stick it doesn't sag as much as you would get with some other climbing ropes or just like accessory cord or something like that. And in comparison to, you know, some of the uh, daisy chain style of methods, you don't have to worry about nailing a specific loop perfectly, right? It doesn't matter what exact diameter that tree is. You can take that am steel, hook it in place and just pull it tight and cinch it. And then you're going to get a minimal amount of, uh, you know, movement down the tree once you actually do put your weight on it. So I'd say that's probably my, my go-to for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty slick. Um, it, and, and for anyone who's not familiar, am steel is just uh, a really low, uh, small diameter, super super strong rope. Right, basically that's that's what it is. And then you you splice essentially a loop in the end, and then with those knots you described, that uh, you're able to do that all without any daisy chains, without any buckles, without anything else. That's pretty. That's a pretty cool way to do it. Yeah, and I like it a lot. It's, you know, personal preference also. I know a lot of guys that have tried the Amsteel rope and they like a daisy chain system better, right? And there's some guys that like the buckle system just from the standpoint that you can get a little bit more momentum on a bigger tree to swing that thing around than you can with a, a little bit lighter rope. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I switched to a daisy chain this year and I like it a lot. I like it a lot more than my buckles um, because like you described, it gets rid of that whole risk of noise. Uh, but you're right. It does have you. You do have a little bit less, you know, ability to get just the right tension as you would with a rope system like you have. Um, I like it for me just because I, you know, it's just dummy proof, and I'm a dummy, so uh, <laughs> it works pretty good for me. Um, continuing with ropes, though, what about linesman's belts or li- lineman's belts? Um, again, I'm using, you know, something I can buy from someone because I don't like to customize things because I don't have confidence in myself to do that. But you're, it seems like many times, making your own, going as lightweight as you possibly can. Um, any recommendations, whether it be for 
making your own or DIYing it, or if someone doesn't feel confident with that and you want to point them to something they can just buy off the shelf or a couple pieces they can buy, what would you recommend as far as improving that? Because I can tell you back in the day when I used to hunt from a tree stand and I used a full tree harness, the linesman's belts they brought they get in the box with those are so god awful and I used them for way too many years that uh, finally switching to something good has been a just a paradigm shift for me. Um, help correct some other people before they spend years and years and years like I did with a piece of crap. Sure. So a couple options. Number one, if you're going to make your own, and, and I'll just I'll start with this because it's what I'm more familiar with, rather than what all the you know particular options you can buy would be. A really good option for a lineman's rope is the Samson Predator 11 millimeter paired with a Rope Man One Ascender. That's really easy to use. You can adjust it both to add tension and remove tension with one hand. It's a nice, you know, a little bit easier to handle size, a little bigger 11 you know, millimeter rope that's very similar to what you would already see in a lot of tree climbing industry applications. And it doesn't take up a whole ton of weight. It's going to be, again, similar to maybe something that's off the shelf from like tethered or muddy or something like that. But it's a, a pretty good, reasonable option. And I use that for uh, several years and didn't really have that many complaints with it. Another option that I've used and used more recently would be a smaller rope, eight millimeter in size, uh, called the Sterling Hoplex rope. And that rope, again, it's a, a static rope. It's got a nice camouflage color to it. It uh, has a nice firm sheath. So it's you're able to use it like a lineman's rope uh, very easily. For that one, I wouldn't use the Rope Man 1 just from a sizing perspective, but you can use other ascenders like the Rope Man 2, uh, there's a Kong duck, there's a CT roll and lock. Those are all mechanical ascender options. And if a guy doesn't want to use a mechanical ascender, maybe he doesn't feel comfortable with it or, or whatnot, you can also use uh, a small cord like a, a Beal Jammy. And it's a little small cord that's very high tensile strength that is used for basically making hitches on smaller diameter ropes like that. And then you can use either like a Prusik knot or there's other types of knots that you could use in that particular setting to slide your carabiner back and forth. And then there's little pieces that you can add to that system that are called tenders that basically would take the place of your second hand. You know, normally when you have a Prusik knot on a, a lineman's rope, you would have to grab the knot with one hand and pull, pull the tag into the rope with the other. Yeah. Right. So what the tender basically does is a little, a little mechanism that just basically when you pull on the tag end of the rope, it, grabs the back end of the knot for you and allows you to slide that with just one hand. So that's an option for guys who want to go with maybe a smaller rope, uh, but don't necessarily want to go with a mechanical ascender. They have that option too. What I typically do for the lineman's rope is I use that Sterling Oplex rope with a Rope Man 2 ascender. Um, you got to be a little bit careful with the Rope Man 2 because the, the teeth do tend to, to chew away at the, the sheath if you're not careful. But if you're careful, I haven't found it to be that much of an issue. Uh, but I've heard reasonably good things about the Kong Duck and the CT Roll and Lock too for that particular application. And then for a tether, same same thing. You can use the Samson Predator rope. You can use the Sterling Oplex rope for that. I've used both of them. Um, if I were going to make a tree stand tether, I would probably go with the a uh, little bit larger diameter uh, Samson Predator rope and use a, a friction hitch. Whereas for the, the saddle, I usually use that Oplex and I usually just use a, 
and again, a mechanical ascender because it's just really nice and easy and fast to be able to adjust on the fly. So when you're talking about these different types of ropes, why are you why are you choosing one or the other? Um, like what is this simply trying to cut ounces, trying to be as, as lightweight as possible for a lot of this um, versus just, you know, taking the rope that I get when I buy the whole kit with my saddle or something like that? Yeah, so basically it's trying to reduce reduce weight, reduce bulk, make it easier to use, all without making too big of a compromise on safety. Right. So if there was if I was going to do something where I could get down to a two ounce lineman's rope, but it put me at a large risk safety wise, it wouldn't be worth it. Right. And if there's nothing wrong with the the off the shelf stuff, other than the fact that, you know, it's just bigger rope. Even that Samson Predator is a little bit bigger rope. So when you bunch that thing up and put it in your, you know, little sis hauler type bag, it's just going to take up more space and that's less space for other type things. Um, the weight, if you have a pretty minimalist system, isn't a huge concern. But again, if you can make it lighter without compromising safety and you can make it more packable, then why not? Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. I hear you there. So speaking of um, trying to find lightweight, non-bulky ways to improve your system, we were talking sticks. I forgot to ask you about your aiders. Um, I know that's another thing that you've tried a whole bunch of different routes. I've been trying a couple things here over the last year, tried to add that to my system. Um, Walk me through some of the different options. I guess first off, 
explain to folks what an aider is and then walk us through some of the different options you've tried and and what you've ultimately landed on for you? Sure. So in a nutshell, an aider is an additional step that's flexible that you can attach to your stick so that when you pack your sticks up, it's not taking up any extra length. But yeah, when you hang the stick on the tree, you have that extra foothold that just kind of dangles underneath your step so that you can have one additional foothold to get you a little bit higher per stick up the tree. And typically, they don't add much weight at all, depending on how you how you build them. So there's either options that are DIY or there's options that are store-bought. In the rock climbing industry, especially for like big wall type climbing, they'll have these aiders that guys will use to help them get up the up the walls. And a lot of times those aiders will be three, four, five, or even six steps. I've tried aiders like that, and a lot of guys like them. For me, I find that when you get that many steps and you get aiders that are that long, they tend to be a little bit more challenging for me to use, especially if I'm on trees that are maybe not straight, um, or maybe I'm going from one trunk to another on the way up and balance becomes an issue. I personally like just a single step that's pretty close to the same length as my normal step spacing. So for my sticks, if I have a 22-inch step spacing, I would have one aider loop that is about you know, 20, 21, 22 inches right thereabouts for my additional loop. Uh, I find that early season, or if I'm practicing in the summer, I can add two loops that big, and I can use it just fine. But get into November, December, you got extra clothes on, I really feel a lot more secure with just having the the single loop. And that's, again, a, a comfort level for, you know, some guys are going to like being able to get higher and they're, you know, maybe in a warmer climate, they're, you know, a little bit more athletic and they don't have any issues at all with a multi-step, you know, long aider. Whereas you might have another guy who just feels a little bit safer with kind of minimizing the amount of aider that he has on each stick or maybe just having an aider on the ground level stick and then as normal as other sticks are aider free as normal. Yeah. That's that's the route I took as a as kind of a beginner's step into using an aider is I bought one of those five step aiders from the rock climbing world and I attached that to my bottom stick. But now instead of having my bottom stick, you know, way low on the tree, I can stick that bottom stick at head level almost and then I can climb up to it with the aider. But God forbid if I, you know, got a little uncomfortable using the aider, I'm only three, four feet off the ground. So it's no big deal. Um, right. So that was a nice way to try it out this year. But what, what kind of aider you describe you using that single loop aider? Um, you're making that yourself, right? How do you do that? Yeah, I took a piece of three sixteenths inch am steel. And remember the, the steps on my stick are double step and it's a fixed double step. So I basically spliced it into the loop on one side of my step. And then I spliced it into the other side. So I was able to use a locked Brummel splice on the first side. And then you can't do a locked Brummel splice on the other side, which is just one of the two methods of making a splice. So on the second splice, I had to do basically just a, a lock stitch to hold that in place. So if people aren't familiar with splicing, that's probably going to be really hard to follow. But it basically looks like just a big U hanging off the bottom of the stick. And it's just an Amsteel U. Uh, so the advantage of that is since one side of the aider is attached to one side of the, the step and the other is attached to the other side of the step, that loop is always open. It doesn't twist. It makes a really nice, big, open uh, catching point for me to be able to fit my boot in. Some of the aiders I've made in the past, they were multi-step. And sometimes I would just attach them to the tube of the stick in the center. 
they would tend to spin around on me and be a little bit more challenging to get my boot in, especially on the way down in the dark. Yeah. So having having an aider loop that stays open and it doesn't twist makes it a lot easier to use, I think. Is there any fix you've found for dealing with that twist um, without creating the, you know, always in splice like you described there? Because, yes, that spin is something I've experienced with mine. Um, any tips for making that a little bit better? Or just figure out a better system? <laughs> Yeah, if if you're if you're stuck with a type of aider system that only attaches on a center point of the stick, it can be challenging. What usually just ends up working the best for me in those type of scenarios is just to, especially if you're way down, you just take your first foot in that loop and just, you know, you get your foot centered in it nice and and well, and then you just bite your toe into the tree, and you know the more firm you can make that first step, the better the rest of the steps beneath it will kind of follow that same that same line or stay in that same plane. Uh, whereas if you just kind of haphazardly fit your boot in and kind of let your foot, you know, just spin and, and angle up against the tree, then the rest of the steps are just going to kind of do whatever. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen, well, I've heard people talk about, and I've seen you experiment with climbing methods involving only one stick or no sticks. Um, can you describe, is that even tenable for the average person or is that pretty crazy? It seems pretty crazy. Um, but what's your experience been with kind of experimenting with that? So yes and no. I experimented a bit a couple of years ago with both the, what they call the one stick method or single sticking, as well as, you know, what you alluded to is like, hey, if you can use a single stick, why not just take an aider and move it up the tree as you go? Basically what both of those systems entail is you basically hang from a tether and you take one stick and you move it up and attach it to the tree. Then you climb into that stick or climb up onto it. You slide your tether up and then you hang again. And then you detach the stick, move it up, and you just repeat that process until you're up at hunting height. And when you would want to go back down, you'd repeat that same process in reverse. So even if it wasn't that big of a a pain in the butt to get up into the tree, it took forever to get down. That was one of the reasons why I didn't really use it all that much. Uh, but there is another option that you can do for getting down the tree, uh, which would be to repel. <laughs> so if you if you have awesome. a forty foot if you have a forty foot piece of rope and you have your repelling equipment, which you know this is all you know, pretty standard stuff within other industries, you know like canyoneering and, and rescue and things like that. You can basically do whatever method you want to get up the tree. And even if that method is a pain in the butt to get down, it doesn't matter because you can just drop it right out of the tree and you can, you know, lean back and just rappel right down and then retrieve your, your 40 foot rope, throw it back in your harness pouch and be on your way back to the truck. So that's actually a, a method that I've been playing around with a lot more recently because rappelling to me is, is something new. I haven't really played around with it until the last couple months, uh, but I actually, I really like it. <laughs> so I'll probably for at least most of my sets or at least a large majority of them, I'll try and play around a lot more with that single stick and rappel. You know, the, really the only advantage that I get is, you know, packing weight and bulk, right? If I have three sticks, I'm usually packing those things onto the back of my pack and then I'm carrying my bow. But with a single stick, I can throw that thing on the bottom of the pack, put my bow on the outside, and then I have two free hands to help with balance and whatnot as I'm going through like a, a march or something. So there's some advantages there. 
just like with multiple sticks, I can get into basically any tree with that method. And then if I need to get down quick, let's say I spy on a deer and it's rolling around in the grass and you know I need to be able to get onto the ground to get a second arrow in them, or if I need to basically get down and move to a different tree based on movement, being able to rappel down is a lot quicker and it makes you feel safe because you're always attached to the tree. Um, so there's, there's definitely some advantages there. It takes a little bit of getting used to. I've learned that with the single stick, there's some things about it that make it a little bit easier to use. One would be the specific type of aider that you would use with it. The other would just be specifics about the stick, right? A stick that is very solid, doesn't have a lot of flex, bites into the bark really well, tends to work better than some other sticks. So like anything, there's, there's fine tuning and tweaking. Um, but for a guy who figures it out and makes it a part of a system and gets used to it, I think there's definitely some advantages with that type of a system for sure. Yeah. So, so tell me about how you think about safety with all of this, because as we talk about all these different climbing methods and all these different elevated hunting styles, um, and modifying things, safety is a big issue. I'm sure it's on your mind as you're making these decisions. I know that for anyone that's listening or for myself, we obviously have to be very, very, very careful about everything we do. Um, because you are taking your life into your own hands when you go into an elevated position. Um, you Everybody should know that. It's, it's one of those things that you are tackling a innately risky type of scenario that you just have to be incredibly careful with. Um, especially since I became a father, I have just kind of worry-warded more and more every time I get up into a tree, just trying to make sure I'm doing everything exactly right, taking my time, being very thoughtful about every step I take, every time I'm getting on and off or every time I'm shifting my handholds or anything, always making sure I'm attached. Um, just I, I can't afford to make a mistake. How do you go about thinking about that yourself? And I'm sure you get a million questions from people people watching your videos, people hearing about how you're modifying things or trying these things. How do you handle the safety topic with those that are listening to the things you're doing? Yeah, and it is especially important for me too because if I make a video on something and somebody tries to replicate and maybe they do something a little bit different, right, or, or maybe they're a much bigger guy than I am, but they can all have implications for sure. So typically what I, what I look at it as, I look through the lens of number one, are there similar industries that are already using these type of items? How are they using them? What are the regulations? What are the, the standard operating procedures? And why are those the way they are? Right? If there's already something within the, you know, the canyoneering industry or the rock climbing industry or the arborist industry that's standard, there's probably a good reason for it. If I am going to deviate from something like that, I better have a good reason or understand why it is the way it is in that industry and why it might be different for what I'm trying to do. Um, the other thing is I will always look at things like the, the specifications of whatever materials I'm going to potentially be using. I'll look at test data. Uh, and this I think helps a little bit. I come from a, an engineering background, so I'm always looking at tensile strengths. Um, I'm looking at how different things mate together. Am I you know, introducing any risk by using something in conjunction with something else? And the other thing that we have, like even in our industry at work, you know, one thing we'll have is we'll call, we'll have something called a failure modes and effects analysis that we'll do when we're designing something in product development. And it basically is a list of every single possible thing that could go wrong. And then tied into that is 
what is the severity of you know this thing happening and then also what is the likelihood or the you know the occurrence of this potentially happening so if there's something that is really likely to happen even if it's you know something that is maybe not that big of a deal right like let's say for example you using your aider just on your first on your first stick right you falling from 5 feet might not be that big of a deal you might roll your ankle or you might do something like that but right that's that's something that is a decision you can make mm-hmm. conversely if there's something that's very unlikely to happen but the severity of it you know if it does happen is really really severe you know like death then that's also something where you got to take a step back and say maybe this isn't you know worth it so you got to look at it from the lens of number 1 have we reduced the likelihood of any bad thing happening and also number 2 is the severity of it, you know, under control. Um, and that's not a decision that anybody can take lightly. And it's not a decision that you should just, you know, look on YouTube or a forum or something and just assume that whatever somebody says is right. Um, and ultimately if you don't feel comfortable, if you have questions about something, you shouldn't do it and just do what's, you know, kind of already been established, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's important stuff. And then obviously keeping, the common sense things in mind, such as just making sure you're attached to the tree at all times, making sure that you are, yeah, just use common sense and take your time. Don't rush things. That's one of the things that I'm, that I personally battle with because I love the idea of being able to get up in the tree fast and having a great system in place and being quiet and efficient and like, bam, I'm up there and I'm hunting. That's kind of like the dream scenario. You want to be that, quiet efficient predator but if you find yourself rushing and you're just i just want to get up fast i want to get up fast um that's when i think i find myself making a little sloppy mistake or foot slips or you know you introduce this possibility of of added risk so i i try to remind myself that smooth isn't i think it's smooth is fast or slow is fast and fast no smooth i always get this wrong when i try to say it (laughs) smooth is no slow is smooth and smooth is fast is that right garrett you know what i'm I talking what about don't you I know, I know yeah i know the <laughs> the saying that you're going for and if i try to remember it i'll screw it up too, so. <laughs> it's basically it's try to be smooth and take it slow and when you do that you end up going faster than like trying to rush it and getting all herky-jerky and stumbling on what you're trying to do um so that's what i try to keep reminding myself when i'm trying to get up in the tree is is just take it one step at a time, and as as you go smoothly through it, it happens in a much more efficient manner. And I think one way to do that, though, is to practice it and to have like a plan in place. So when I first started trying to be a mobile hunter, like I got my sticks, I got my portable tree stand, and then I just went out hunting one day with it, and I never practiced with it before. And it must have taken me like forty five minutes to get up in the tree. I rattled and I clanked buckles and. You know, I got up in there and then I realized, oh crap, I got to go down there and get my backpack and get my bow. I'd forgotten to tie things and just a mess. And year after year after year after year after year, I've gotten a little bit better every year and fine tuned my system a little bit to the point where now I've got a, a, a much better system in place. And, you know, I'm just continuing to modify it and trying to make it quieter, trying to make it smoother. Um, but tell me about what your process is. How do you or what things do you try to do? to make that process as smooth or as efficient or as quiet as possible? Because I'm sure those things are important to you too. 
Yeah. So I have a couple of trees in my backyard and they're not necessarily the easiest trees to climb either. You know, aspens with lots of limbs and things like that. And when I'm trying all these different climbing methods, or even if it's something that I'm familiar with, I always tinker and I go around in the backyard and I try climbing with it. And just from a consequence of how often I'm back there trying one thing or another, I become really comfortable with my equipment and I become much more efficient being able to use them. It all becomes kind of second nature. And so I think that's definitely something that's helpful versus a guy that, you know, breaks his stuff out a week before the season and just throws it in the truck and gets ready to hit the woods. The other thing that I'll do fairly often, especially this time of year, because the leaves are down and I don't want to get that awkward feeling of the neighbors watching is I'll just go out and climb the trees in the dark. And usually there's enough moonlight or street light, you know, ambiance that I can see what I'm doing even without a headlamp. And just having that little bit lower level of visibility helps me get, again, much more familiar with my equipment. That's smart. I like that because that's a scenario that at least I find myself in more and more often, wanting to go and do a run and gun set in the morning and you're doing it an hour and a half or two hours before daylight or whatever it is. And uh, when I first started trying to do that, that was just kind of a disastrous scenario. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. But now I've done it so many times that you just you can do it with a headlamp. But <laughs> practicing it the way you're talking about is it's smart, especially if you're just getting started. Um, let's, okay, let's take the next step then. We, we start on the ground. We've talked about our ropes. We've talked about our climbing method. We've talked about the process of getting up there. And I guess one other thing, um, yeah, let's keep on climbing the tree. Your process of, you know, getting your pack or your bow or anything like that. Do you, do you have everything on your back when you climb up into the tree or do you have your bow and your pack on the ground and you pull them up with ropes or uh, what about your sticks when you're going up with, do you have all your sticks in your backpack and then you pull them off as you start going or how do you connect all these things to you as you ascend? Yeah. So if I were using the one stick method, I probably would have my bow on my pack, but typically what I would do, and I'll explain this for, you know, the three slash four stick setup because that's, most often what I would do and probably what is more common for a lot of the listeners. So I get to the tree, I take the sticks off the pack, lay them all on the ground, same thing on my saddle platform, and I lay the bow down. And then on my pack, I have a retractable pull-up rope, uh, a Doyle's gear hoist that I'll often use, and I'll just connect that to the bow and I'll put the pack back on my back. Then I'll take the saddle platform, I'll hang it on a loop on the back of my saddle, so it's right in the middle of my my behind and then i'll take the sticks i'll take one of them stick it right on the tree then i'll take sticks two and three and i'll hang them on the sides of my harness at my hips and then i'll take that last stick if it's a a four stick hunt and i'll climb up onto the first stick attach the lineman's rope and put that second stick on so then at that point i have two sticks on the tree i have my pack my saddle platform and sticks three and four all ready to go so i just continue climbing with that lineman's rope I'll take one of the sticks off one hip, stick it on the tree, keep climbing, take that fourth stick off, attach it, keep climbing. And then once I get up to hunting height, essentially, I'll take the saddle platform off the back of the saddle and I'll stick it onto the tree, climb up onto it, hang the tether first, then climb up onto the platform and take out a little utility strap from one of my saddle pouches. And that utility strap has two hooks on it, one for the bow, one for the pack. So once that's on the tree, I'll take the pack off my back, hang on one of those hooks. Then I'll go and 
pull the bow right up and hang it on the other hook. And assuming I wasn't filming, that would be it. Uh, from that point, I would be essentially ready to hunt. And getting back down to the ground would be the same thing in reverse. Yeah. How do you attach sticks three and four to your saddle? What are you using to connect it? So there's little plastic clips that you can that you can buy. Um, Eastern Woods Outdoors sells these little Kydex things. I've also taken like the little the little like snaps, little plastic snaps that you can have for like keychain holders and things like that. And I just kind of break them in half and kind of use zip ties to hold them onto the the saddle mesh. And basically just gives me a little bit of a hook on that saddle. And then what I can do on my sticks and my saddle platform is I take a little piece of paracord or a tent guy line or something like that. And I will just tie a loop, maybe two inches in diameter or so, two, three inches in diameter onto the top of the, the sticks and the platform. So then I'm able to just basically take those and hang them on those little hooks on the saddle. Nice. So your, your, your platform. Um, now that you use a saddle that's kind of replaced a tree stand platform, of course, in most cases. Um, but I know you used to do some different modifications to tree stands and a lot of people still do that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you, do you make any mods to your platform similar to what you would do with a tree stand? Um, or are you using a platform or have you ever tinkered with making your own platform? I know some guys have made their own platforms. I know that Tethered makes one, the one I use that I like a lot. Um, but what are you doing with the platform these days? Yeah, so I started off with the DIY ones. Right? Before, before you know, there was a commercial option. Everybody was DIY. Anybody who was making a set of platform, it was basically diy at that point in time. And mine was no different. And I've graduated to now using the one that tethered has and i actually helped design that one um but i don't really make too many modifications to it myself the only thing that i do is i spray painted it and then i added on you know the little loop so i can hang it from my saddle and i use the mini versa strap and then i also you know the um the versa button that's cast into that post yeah i I ground the diameter of that down a little bit so it's a little bit easier for me to put on the loop of the versus trap the mini versus trap and um that's really all that i've done to it uh, at one point i wrapped it with paracord but then i felt like i wasn't able to use the traction on the side quite as well so i ended up taking it off okay. i put uh i got stealth strips on the on the post but apart from that i really haven't modified it too much okay so you alluded to a few things that i know you do with tree stands too or have um but for people that don't use a saddle and they're still using a tree stand of some kind, a lone wolf or an XOP or whatever it is, but they want to hunt in a mobile fashion. Um, can you describe some of these modifications that you recommend for tree stands or that you've tried in the past that someone could try? Yeah, so for any of the, like the posts, you know, I did that on the saddle platform. I've done it on my lone wolf stands in the past. I like putting cell strips on there because, number one, it adds camo. It makes it a soft touch, warmer to the touch. You're not holding cold aluminum on your bare hands when you're trying to hang the, the stand. And then, of course, it makes contact much, much quieter. So if you were to bang the buckle on the, the post or any part of the platform, it would make a whole ton of noise, typically right out of the box. But once you add that stealth strip material, which is you know that nice kind of micro fleece, uh, and you do the same thing with the buckle, if you're going to be using a buckle, then it really does make a huge difference if you do have that accidental contact. Um, and apart from that, you would just have to be really careful to make sure that you don't make that metal to metal clang. Uh, but as my experience is careful as you are, you usually still 
mess up at some point. Yeah. Um, and that could be, that could be the end of a hunt depending on where you're set up. So I like the stealth strips where applicable, um, on the platform itself for a tree stand, what I've done is wrap the edge and what I like to do on the outer rim of the platform is use even something a little bit heavier than paracord, like a quarter inch polyester camel rope or something like that. Uh, because number one, it, it really adds a lot of thickness and a lot of noise deadening um, ability, especially when you let that, that post kind of swing down. If you got the bolts a little bit loose and normally it would make that big slap. Um, it really deadens that down entirely. And then also it gives you a little bit of a tactile feel for where the edge of the platform is without having to look down at it. So if I have that quarter inch rope wrapping the outer rim of my platform, even though it adds a little bit of weight, it makes it a little bit more user-friendly uh, from my perspective. Yeah. And then the seat, I've experimented with a couple things on the seats. Uh, actually, on my Lone Wolf, I, I took the seat off at one point. I put an XOP seat on with a little bit bigger uh, size and the much beefier pad. Um, I've looked into ways, there's, there's a way you can actually take a Millennium seat, like off of their M60Us, I think it is, and modify that onto a Lone Wolf. I never did that one. Is that the sling, the guys that the I, sling style seat kind of? No, it's not a sling. It's like a, it's kind of like a lawn chair. Almost. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It's like a, yeah, it's like a really tightly held mesh. Tight mesh, yes. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so there's ways to do that. Uh, I haven't done it myself, but those are options. And, and now after after saddle hunting for a while, I, I realized that like, if I go back to a tree stand now, I've gotten so used to so many different things that I feel like I don't even really need the padded, you know, big seat as much. I'm able to, I'm more comfortable with a more minimalist system now than I ever used to be. Yeah. So where do you stand on the saddle thing? Um, I started using one two seasons ago now. Um, and it's, I've just been floored by the, by the things it allows you to do. Um, so I've become a huge believer where do you stand on that? Um, you plan on just using a saddle for most of the time moving forward, or do you see a need for you know grabbing your portable stand still at times? What's what's where's your head at? Yeah, it's definitely my primary system, without a doubt. What I usually tell people when they ask, because I get this question quite a bit, is I'll still I'm not opposed to going back to a tree stand for when the situation calls for it, and when the situation might call for it would be, let's say, I got a spot where I've pre-scouted it. I know exactly the tree I want to be in. That tree has maybe a little bit of a slight backward lean. It's got a bunch of branches and stuff hanging off the backside. So ideally in that setup, I'd be on the front side of the tree with that little bit backward lean, and that's where I would put my tree stand platform. And that would just be like one scenario. But if I'm going in blind to a spot, or if it's you know anything else than maybe that particular scenario that I just described, I feel like there's a lot more versatility with the saddle in terms of where I can you know, set it up not only in the tree, but also on the ground, like some of those ground type setups that I alluded to earlier. If I'm sitting on the front side of a tree. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll just take that platform and I'll hang it six inches off the ground. And that gives me a little bit more clearance for my cam when I'm swinging the bow around a ground level. Um, same thing if I'm on the backside of the tree, I can hang the tether off the backside of a big tree, hang behind that tree in the shade and basically be more comfortable than if I was just sitting on the ground or standing behind the tree. So really, I feel like it gives me a lot of versatility in addition to obviously being, you know, a quiet, safe, uh, portable system. Yeah. You know, a big thing I've always liked about um, the saddle setup is just how much more lightweight it is. You know, if you've got a couple mile hike in, it just, it's it's a night and day difference between hiking in with 
sticks in a stand versus just sticks um, and the bulk and everything. We've talked a ton about your kind of hunt, your your elevated hunting gear. Um, is there anything else from your, you know, whole selection of gear that you have found helps you cut weight? If we're talking about how to become more lightweight when it comes to hunt, heading into hunt, um, anything we haven't talked about? Uh, traditional bow saves you a few pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. <laughs> but that's obviously not practical for a lot of guys. Um, one thing that I played around with a little bit this year actually was both my boot system for late season and my clothing system. They both had significant impacts on how much weight I'm carrying in once it gets colder. So in the past, when it's gotten cold enough, I've either walked in with heavy boots or walked in with lighter boots and carried heavier boots. But one of the things I did this year, and I really ended up liking it quite a bit, was I used uninsulated boots and just like a lightweight pair of hiking socks for every hunt this year. And what I would basically do is I would pack in a pair of those insulated boot covers, you know, like the Arctic Shield ones. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a couple other brands out there now too. I think Dan Johnson does the same thing now. And yeah, he, he said he, he likes that. I heard that. Um, it's, it's definitely less weight than bringing in an extra pair of boots. You can supplement it with hand warmers if need be. And your feet don't sweat nearly as much, at least for me. My feet sweat even when I'm sitting on the couch watching a football game, right? So, <laughs> so what I like to do now is I, I'll take a like a antiperspirant foot lotion. I'll rub it on my feet, then I'll put on the a liner sock, you know, thin polypropylene. Then I'll put on a midweight wool sock, and then an uninsulated boot, and that'll take me without my feet sweating as far as I want to go. And then once I get set up, I'll put those boot covers on and add the hand warmers if need be, and my feet have not gotten cold. So that's definitely a big step up in terms of just kind of usability and and comfort in the woods in addition to not having to carry that extra weight that i would used to i used to bring in pack boots i would lash those onto my stand just so that my feet wouldn't get cold and that's that's not going to be an issue anymore yeah the other thing i played around with was you know historically i would be the bibs and parka kind of guy and i would walk in with base layers and some kind of wind shell and then once i got to the tree then I would put on my insulating layers. So I would almost be kind of like doubling up on the shell fabric. And what I tried this year is basically I would take a, a little bit oversized shell and I would walk in with that over top of my base layer, but then I would just pack in puffy type garments, you know, whether it was a synthetic puffy or a down puffy. And then once I get to the, the tree and get set up, I would take off that shell, put on the puffy jacket and put the shell back on over top. And that saves me a significant amount of not only weight, but also bulk when you look at it from the perspective of just how many layers of clothing I would typically be wearing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I've, I've tried something similar. Um, just whatever way you go about it, having a layering system like that in mind and, and knowing when to use some and when to add some later, just having that figured out is a big shift for a lot of people that helps. So uh, smart to be thinking about that stuff. Um, yeah, definitely. Anything else on that front or uh, otherwise I'm curious about heavyweight hunting. Trying to think (laughs) in terms of, in terms of lightweight, you know, light headlamp, light binos. Um, I mean, your bow is going to weigh what your bow is going to weigh. So, you know, that's kind of almost a separate discussion. Yeah. Um, well, I can't really think of anything too, 
too ultra specific. I mean, I, like I mentioned, I don't really carry all that much stuff. If I didn't wear my, or if I didn't pack in camera gear every hunt, then my setup would be, you know, nearly as minimalist as just about any, but I almost wouldn't even need a, to bring a pack on a lot of hunts until it gets colder. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up. You're, you're filming your hunts and more and more people want to do that. Um, I've self-filmed a ton of hunts and I know it's, it's really cool, but it's also a real pain in the butt. Um, any advice as far as how you fine tuned your self filming system? Um, any favorite pieces of gear anything worth mentioning there? So I've come to learn that a head mounted camera is in my, in my experience and opinion, a must have. I found that there's been so many times that the head mounted camera saved me when I wasn't able to get great footage on the main camera that it's absolutely always a part of my system now. And with the saddle hunting, I like to run a wide angle action camera on my tether, looking back down for a nice second angle that I can, uh, that I can throw in. And then in terms of kind of the main camera setup, there's a, a couple decent systems for, you know, mobile ultralight. If a guy wants that kind of a camera arm setup, um, out on a limb makes uh, a good system. Um, fourth arrow makes a decent system too. Um, I actually modified mine pretty heavily from what it originally was, swapped all the steel stuff with aluminum uh, to make it a little bit lighter. But apart from what type of arm you're running and what type of camera you have, it's it's pretty cut and dry in terms of that main camera. There's not really a whole lot that I do that's really unique. Um, the head camera is definitely something that I feel like if a guy's having issues or struggles with self-filming his hunts as is, adding in a head camera and running an external battery into that camera and just letting it record the entire evening hunt makes it a lot easier to get done what you need to get done without worrying about hitting extra buttons and making extra movements. Um, and then you can just edit out whatever you need to after the hunt is over. Yeah. It looks like you've got a, I don't know, like you're flying a jet plane or something. When you see the setup you've got in your head, it's a, it's a quite a system you got in place with a battery <laughs> pack on the back. And then this, this camera on the side, describe what camera you're using, how you connect all these things. I think you've got a external mic, a little, little tiny boom mic attached to, uh, at least I've seen you, you wear that at least once. Um, what's that system? Yeah, so I've tried a few different microphone things and not been all ultimately extremely happy with a lot of them. Really the easiest thing from, if you, if you separate yourself from the main camera, which might have a shotgun mic in it, for capturing that other audio, I like to have just a lavalier mic into a recording device that's tucked into a chest pocket. And just have that run the entire hunt. And that's capturing all my voice audio. And it's just capturing kind of your, your ambient noise and ambient audio. That sometimes mirror may not be better than what your action cameras are able to capture. Um, and generally your main camera with your shotgun mic is going to be the best audio. Uh, but then in terms of the other stuff that's on my head. I've done a Sony X3000 on a Solvid head mount. I've done an Osmo Pocket on a DIY head strap, both of those basically with external batteries plugged in. Either one works. I like the footage quality, definitely the Osmo Pocket better, but it is a significantly more hassle-prone piece of equipment to use than the Sony was. And I think even now there's there's definitely better options than that Sony. Like the Missouri Hunt I filmed on the Sony for the head, head mount. And looking at like the GoPro 8 and other cameras that are on the market right now, like the Insta360 one R, they have a one inch sensor action camera. Um, 
they're definitely better now than what I've used on some of my videos in the past. So it real simply is just a 4K action camera. I think 4K is huge for a head mount because you're going to want to have to crop. You know, you capture wide, capture everything, and then you crop in editing to get something that's respectable. Um, so some guys will film in 1080. I, I think it's absolutely on an action camera, in my opinion, worth it to film in 4K and just deal with the bigger file sizes and deal with a little bit extra editing work to crop in. I think you tend to be a little bit more happy with the end result. Man. Yes, that's uh, that's something that I have wished I did more often. I've always had a GoPro, and then I have never liked it on my head. I just never got comfortable with it, so I would put it on a tree mount or I would stick it on a like a selfie stick or something and stick that in my backpack and then I would tell myself well when you when you've got a deer coming in you'll just you'll remember to turn it on and hit record and eight times out of ten I don't <laughs> it's yeah. been, it's been great the couple times I used it but uh, your system of always having it there and always having it on that that makes a lot of sense but uh, yeah because tip, typically you're if you're right-handed, you're going to have the camera on the left side of your head. And so if you don't have it turned on, that means you got to, if you got your bow already held in your left hand, it means you got to take your right hand, reach across your body and turn that camera on. And I've gotten busted with that little bit of movement before, uh, just trying to turn that camera on. So I always like to leave them running. Yeah, smart. Um, well, I've been yapping your ear off for longer than I thought I was going to. Um, so I want to, I want to wrap this up so that your whole night's not sunk. <laughs> um, but but we spent a lot of time, you know, talking about at first your style of hunting and then the gear you use to allow that style of hunting. It's, it's being mobile. It's being adaptable. It's adjusting to what you're seeing, what's working, what's not, uh, the, the kind of stuff strategy or the sort of stuff strategy. <laughs> and um, yeah. if if that is the strategy that you plan on moving forward with, and that's going to be right, some evolution of that will be how you're hunting five years from now, 10 years from now. You want to be getting better and better every year. Tell me this. When you sit down at night this year, it's 2020, it's the winter. I'm sure, based off of what I do know from you and what I can imagine about you, is that you're probably like me and that when you lay down at night, a whole lot of nights you're thinking about what can I, what can I be doing better or what's the next thing or how do I, how do I prep this even, you know, even more perfectly for this next season? Um, mm-hmm. For you, what's, what's next? What's the next step? What do you feel is that next evolution you need to take or you want to take to better fine-tune how you go about hunting deer? And maybe that's a gear thing. Maybe it's a strategy thing. Maybe it's some combination of the two. Um, I'm just curious where your imagination is pointing you right now. So one thing for sure is definitely even more boots on the ground for some of the stuff that I hunted last year. There was definitely areas that I hunted that were new, and I was able to get on deer and, and kind of figure it out in the moment. But like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if I can go back in there, knowing what I know now and just pick those areas apart, then I'll know the exact right tree to be in the first hunt rather than picking it apart and figuring out after, you know, two or three different hunts. And I think one thing that I could do better also is identify deer that I might want to go after. I've never really done a great job at that um, in terms of, you know, using trail cameras and figuring out, okay, I know these particular, you know, deer are in these particular areas and now based on that, I'm going to go back in there. A lot of times 
what I usually end up falling into the trap of is I'll just hunt in a place that I want to hunt and hope that there's something out there that I want to go after. Um, and sometimes I'll, you know, be totally happy filling doe tags or from hunting with a traditional bow, I'll be hunt, you know, happy with just about whatever. But I've never really said like, you know, Hey, there's this deer here and I'm going after him. And maybe that's something I'm not quite ready yet for. Um, but I think that as I continue to get more and more years of doing this really mobile type strategy, and I see more and more things in more and more different places that eventually if I get to the point where I do want to say, I want to go after this deer or a deer of this particular caliber, I think the next step for me is, is really getting a better handle on identifying and locating exactly where those deer might be because they're just not, they're not, there's not as many of them out there as you know we'd like to hope always. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's definitely something where I could learn to improve on. Yeah, well, I uh, I like where your head's at. Um, that's definitely something that I have experience with, and I'll I'll just give you one word of warning: is that if you go down that path, it is addicting, it is all consuming, and it will keep you up <laughs> at night. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to try to figure a deer out. Frustrating at times, but a ton of yeah. fun. So uh, that's pretty awesome, man. I'm I'm getting a kick out of the things you're doing and the stuff and the stories you're sharing and the the way you're approaching gear and, and, uh, I'm, I'm learning stuff. So I appreciate that. And, uh, I'm sure everyone listening does too. So if people want to follow what you're up to learn more about the million different things you've got going on, where can they find your content? Sure. So most of my content is on my YouTube channel. That channel is called DIY sportsman. You can just type that into the search bar on YouTube and it'll pull right up. I also have a Facebook page, Instagram under the same handles, DIY underscore sportsman for Instagram and DIY sportsman for Facebook. I have a website, DIY-sportsman.com. And then I also have a podcast that's through the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. So the network that Dan runs, I have the DIY Sportsman podcast. So those would be all places where people can look up the content that I offer. Awesome. Super cool stuff, Garrett. Keep up the good work. And uh, thanks so much for taking some time to chat tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Had a great time. Let's uh, let's follow up it again uh, sometime soon. Sounds good. And that's going to do it. Another episode in the books. Thank you all for listening. Hope you guys found this one to be interesting. I know I did. Uh, again, I just want to reiterate the whole safety thing with any of this stuff. Using tree stands, using saddles, using different climbing methods. Place safety first. Your life is in your own hands. Take that seriously. Be safe. Stay connected. Use the proper safety tools and methods. And don't risk your life trying to get a deer. All that said, have a wonderful day. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the rest of your run on the treadmill, your day at work, or your drive home, whatever it is. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.